In case you missed it, on News Talk, a look back at the week that was. did feel kinder through the COVID because I think we were all in the one boat. But whatever I could do, I don't like. Yeah, she has an elderly neighbour next door. I and have an elderly neighbour next door. And yeah. you helped her? She knows I'm there, like, and... And what sort of kind gestures have you received in return? I was on the bus. This chap couldn't get on the bus because he was short 10 cents. And what I done was I took out the 10 cents and gave him the 10 cents. I'd bake stuff, you know, and give it away and whatever. I just like giving it away, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, is but she... I wouldn't care if I didn't get a thank you. I just like giving. Yeah. And yeah. is your friend kind? Very. I know she's standing there. No, no, I have to say she is. She doesn't ever think of herself. She always thinks of other people. Someone I know from outside the country area, she come in with pots of jam to me. I love feeding people. Well, bringing people. You're a feeder. I'm, a fe- I'm a feeder. A feeder. Yes. Anybody. Yeah. And you think the people here in Balbriggan are generous? Very, yeah. very generous. Yeah. Local people yeah. in Balbriggan are very, yeah. very generous. Like the real Bal- Balbriggan people. Real Balbriggan people. You know, we're real Balbriggan people. Born and bred. Born and, and bred, third generation. And buttered. Yeah. And buttered. <laughs> <laughs> Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, while some people just love to eat pizza, others take it to a whole new level. Take a listen to this. What were you doing when you thought, I know, I can make a a pizza into a skateboard? (laughs) Well, Sean, we we own this family pizzeria for almost 10 years now and I'm skating, skateboarding for about 18 years at this moment. And on a certain day when I was working, uh, working at the pizzeria together with my brother, I came up with this idea that it would be nice to skateboard on a pizza. So I told him that he thought I was going mad. And six months later, after a lot of trial and error, uh, I came back to him and showed him the pizza skateboard and cruised around in the kitchen. Right. <laughs> Describe the production process then of how you go about making one. Sean, it's quite, it's quite hard. It's not as easy as making a pizza, making a mold putting the pizza inside of the mold and then using epoxy, which is the see-through material, and just uh, pouring it in it. You have to dry the pizza so it doesn't have any water or any grease because the epoxy resin doesn't stick to these two components. But if you dry the pizza, the, the pizza starts taking another shapes and it can crack and it, a lot of things can happen. Mm. But it takes around three weeks from start to end to make a, to make a product out of pizza that will never uh, perish right. or mold. And, uh, and yeah. for, for the skateboard, I mean, it's the shape of a skateboard, but it looks like a pizza. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's a that's a funny thing. I cannot I cannot make a, a let's say a new school skateboard where you can do a lot of tricks on, but I can make an old school skateboard, which means the the uh, the top the deck so called deck it's flat, but you can just cruise around it and you can do all your kickflip with it, but it's not meant to be to be um, to be used as a skateboard. You can do it; it's strong enough, but it's more of a art. Uh, uh, piece or a sculpture for in your home to remind you about that that is a pizza skateboard sure and (laughs) and, and, on each skateboard that you make can you have different toppings on it do you get requests 
Yeah, I get a lot of requests. Can you make me a tuna tuna, tuna pizza? Can you make me a, a vegetarian one? But the only thing I do is I make a margarita and I make a pepperoni. I like the pepperoni because that's my favorite pizza. And you also have to make sure that the whole process of sealing and degreasing and dehydrating the pizza goes well. And if you work with a lot of products and you do that, the colors change and I don't want it. And with these two products, like the margarita and the pepperoni, it really works well. And I only stick to these two. Are there toppings that you wouldn't put on it because it wouldn't help the, the yeah. production for, process? For example, bell pepper. For example, mm. a green bell pepper. If you would use that, it changes its color to uh, black. So then you have the bell pepper in your, on your pizza skateboard, but it's not the color red, orange or green. So it's it's hard to uh, to understand or explain that that is a bell pepper or like mushrooms. If you use mushrooms from uh, from the white color, they turn very, very dark. So that's uh, there are a lot of products, a lot of products that change. Color. Basil, basil turns from green to to black, for example, mm. which is also nice, but is not what I want to uh, um, put out in the world. What an original guy, Dutch artist, chef and skater, Salmon Koshibari from Moncrief. No, Henry, I don't think so. I think too much power has been handed over to one person. And the mayor is just a, a you know, it's a, a representative of Dublin. And how would you feel if that mayor had real power? Would you worry that it would be a power grab? Yes, it would be... of course I would, especially if they weren't elected by the public. Should they? That would be just a free reign. Henry to do whatever they perceived what was right to do, like the mayor in Paris at the moment. I mean, she has just decimated the city in her bid to do good, but it's because nobody is there to stop her. She's putting plant pots, the city is overrun with rats and rubbish, and, you know, so I wouldn't like it in Dublin, no. You wouldn't like it? No, definitely not. So if there was a plebiscite, you would vote no? Definitely. No to a mayor, directly elected mayor? Definitely. There's enough in government and Shannon's and we've enough representatives, Henry. We just need a, a figure. Just a figure. You know, just, just someone with a chain. Patrick's Day. Bring them out. That's it. Put them on the floor. I definitely think that they should have some powers because, you know, the government can't rule every part of the country, which is why it's in such a mess. At the you moment, know? it's the four different areas of Dublin, so it's Fingal, yes. it's Dublin City Council, it's South Not County Dublin, things. and it's also Daenery Rathdown, and it's civil servants, and here in the capital, it's uh, Dublin City Council, and their chief executive, Owen Keegan, has real power. Uh, should that power go to a directly elected mayor, and should we bring it across the regions? We know uh, Limerick voted for it, uh, they will hopefully yes, I have do. one soon. I do, indeed because it would make life a lot easier for the citizens of that area as well in having someone close to home that they can actually directly turn to, whereas now it's, it's a bunch of chickens running around with their heads cut off. Nobody knows who to go to where, you know? You think it would mean better representation? Absolutely, definitely, definitely. I mean, housing executive, for example, in Tala needs to have someone that you can directly turn to because the housing crisis is ridiculous. And you think a directly elected mayor could make a difference yes, to the housing absolutely, crisis? absolutely, definitely. I, as, as a disabled person in a wheelchair, I've had an ongoing battle with them being on the medical emergency list for the last five years. And I have no one that I can actually directly go to, whereas if there was an elected mayor in our area, it would make a lot of be just easier. one mayor? At the moment, there's four mayors for Dublin. 
Yes, I do. You're from Yorkshire. You moved to Ireland only recently. You have directed elected mayors up in that part of the world. For example, there's a Liverpool one, there's a Manchester one. Does it work? Do they have real power? Do they make a difference? I think that they do. I think that it's good to have someone who's directly elected so you can all have your say and sort of, you know, put your voice forward and they can make decisions on your behalf and make sure that they're taking everybody's word, like voices into account to make decisions on behalf of the people. You'd like to vote for vote one? Vote for one, yeah. Yeah, vote for a Lord Mayor. And would that make things better? Would that improve the city if there was just one mayor? Well, at least you, you, you'd know who would be going in. You'd know the, the background, you know. At the moment, Dublin City Council, they horse trade between parties and they share it out once every year. Yeah. Uh, the public don't get a say. That's, that's it. That's why I'm saying vote. At least you're voting for the person you want in, which would be far better than just one going in. That you don't, you don't know the history of. nationwide, I know that Limerick... They had a plebiscite yeah. and they voted to have a directly elected mayor. Uh, yeah. Should we have that here? We too? should have it here, yeah. Well, you do agree with it, yeah. But they would have yeah. Just keep it the way it is. They do nothing anyway, even if they were elected directly, too. So just leave it as it is? Aye, so they do nothing anyway. You're from Donegal. Are you a bit sort of disillusioned with politics? Oh, aye, aye. aye. So they've, they've wrecked it, so they have. They're, they're, they're done, like, they... You see what's going on up in Donegal with the housing at the moment. If you had a directly elected mayor or someone that was in charge of Donegal, obviously you've got your councillors and you've got your, he your would TDs. Just, he would just hide behind who they have to hide behind. That's what they do. So they'd they, be hiding. Uh, they, just, they just pass it on to the next and pass it on to the next. It goes up the ladder. If you, if you see what's going on with the housing, the mica up in Donegal, you would see what's, what, how they, they get away with it. They won't even reference it at all. I think it does need to be turned around. I would say it's a stepping stone for some politicians, some up-and-coming politicians, what I would say it would be. So you think it would be like Boris Johnson, he was Mayor of London, that was a stepping stone to that, Prime Minister? That, that's, that's, a, that's a classic example, yeah, I, I think that's what it would be. The, the, the next step would be to move on to the political party, and I don't know how they would then influence the councillors. Would there still be councillors there doing what they're doing at the minute? Or would it be they a would whole, have whole different powers. They would have real power. They could actually do something. But would they have the money to do something? Who, who, you know, is the funding going to be the same way as it is, or how are you going to get the money to do those things? You know, the government will still say, that "Well, it have to be worked out." It would come in from the Department of Environment, wouldn't it? So that's that, so. It's going to take a long time before you can really understand what an elected Lord Mayor would look like, or what the shape it would be. On Monday, the Pat Kenny Show explored living with bipolar disorder. Here is author Liam Gilday. Now, um, you, you mentioned the the highs. Now, for people who are wondering, they've don't really understand bipolar, they might understand the old term for bipolar, which was manic depression. And, you know, that shows the two constituent parts, the mania and the depression. Um, Talk about the the mania and what you might do when you were in that phase. Yeah, so I suppose just to distinguish, there's two main different types of bipolar. There's bipolar 1 and there's bipolar 2. The the main key differences between the two of them is the level of mania you experience. So for bipolar 1, it's it's mania, which usually tips into psychosis. I was a bipolar 2, so mine is called hypermania. So it's not as noticeable. So if you didn't know me, you'd probably just say, God, that guy is arrogant and he, he he's full of energy, but he, you know, he, he just can't stop talking. Um... The hypomania, and, and like I said, us bipolar people, we like the highs. It's a lovely feeling for the first few months. It's just, and like, that's one of the things. It's like, you know, I could be, after coming out of being nine months depressed, and all of a sudden you're this nice feeling that 
you don't you know you only need two or three hours sleep uh your thoughts are really quick you're just in it's just like being high off drugs and um but <clears throat> whilst it's nice for me it's not exactly nice for people around me as the months pass i you know i get more argumentative and um which wouldn't really be my in my personality but um yeah look at it it leads mm. to funny situations between online dating I remember one stage running up a phone bill for 527 euro where I somehow managed to talk for 19 hours to people in the space of two weeks and uh, yeah at the time I didn't think there was anything wrong I just thought yeah, I just, I just had no awareness 19 hours on the phone on a bill of 527 euro uh, did did that act as a wake-up call if you'll pardon the pun and did, you yeah. to say oh my goodness what have I done I know and you know you're looking back at it and um, you know people are saying to you how on earth did you not see that well like at the time I was just so caught up in it and um, God help all the ex-girlfriends that had to listen to me but it was just I was just a crazy time you know I just I had I had no awareness I had awareness of when I was severely depressed but it was going to take me a few years to figure out this uh, mania and this hypomania side of it. And when you look back on those uh, manic episodes uh, when you were um, suffering from hypomania, I mean, were you either in your own head or in reality much more attractive to the girls? Yeah, I suppose there's a a term called uh, peacocking where um, fellas go strutting around and uh, that's where you're at when you're at that hypomania. You're, you know, the grandiose is off the charts. Uh, the confidence is off the charts. So, you know, things that you'd have no difficulty in approaching, you know, any woman that you've seen, you know, you just didn't doubt yourself. And for a lot of people that wouldn't know you, they'd just say, God, that guy is extremely confident, maybe a small bit arrogant. But, yeah, and you almost tried, you almost <clears throat> attracted people towards you because you were fun. You were like the life of the party you had a kind of a strut around you. And um, yeah, yeah, it, it did work that way, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, normally a guy will look at a, a very attractive woman and say, oh God, she's out of my league. When you're suffering from hypomania, you never say that. Yeah, that's the nice part of it because you don't, the, the <laughs> lack of confidence is gone and, you know, you're way out of your league, but you're still there chatting away. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny looking back, you know. <laughs> now, what about the the other side? I mean, does that uh, arrogance, that confidence, get you into trouble? I mean, do you, do you end up getting into fights or arguing with fellas at the bar? Um, yeah, you, you know, spending too much. Yeah, you end up uh, tipping on too many people's, uh, stepping on too many people's toes. Yeah, the the money, the spending money just goes out of control. Um, you know, you spend a thousand euro on clothes over the weekend. You're, you're buying the same jumper in six different colours. You're like, you know, you're throwing money on horses. Um, it was never that big of a, of a drinker. But anyway, you spend every penny you had. I was probably lucky I didn't have 40 grand in savings because if I did, I'd have blown the lot of it, you know. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you get a diagnosis? Because you remark in the book that there is no kind of scan, brain scan you can get that will diagnose this condition. Yeah, you, you know, you need a, I was fortunate now with a really good GP. You need a strong GP to be able to pinpoint. So whilst he, you know, my GP had seen me in my depressive episodes, he had noticed then when I was coming in for other physical symptoms that, oh, guy, this, this guy is bipolar. Because I remember talking to him one day for 10 minutes about 
you know, how to come up with this elaborate plan, how to uh, how to beat the bookies and uh, I was going to orchestrate a certain amount of, of uh, bets on a number of horses and I was going to make a million out of it. And uh, we often talk about it to this day. He said, yeah, that was the day I remember. I realised, oh, Liam's bipolar. <laughs> Some interesting insights there from Liam Gilday from The Pat Kenny Show. I would be a bit hesitant about going to a large Christmas party. You know, I think people realise that they've got to do what they have to do, you know, to make things better. I'm looking forward to it, but I'm looking forward to it as most because they're all um, men on my job. There's no women. Will it be low-key compared to the years now or will you be having a large event? I don't know. The boss is a bit tight. Like, we'll be lucky to get out. Some more eager than others to party away under the mistletoe. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly says that Christmas parties can go ahead if COVID measures are followed. But is there a demand for large festive get-togethers? Well, Caroline Murray is Director of Operations with Creative Events. She says interest has recently changed. There was, certainly up to Halloween time, people were still hoping that they would be able to have an in-person event. But over the last couple of weeks, I think a lot of people have realised that with the rising numbers, that they might be better off sticking with a virtual activity for this year to get everybody together. That was the general consensus is that they wanted to try and get in person if they could at all. But now they're kind of reverting back to virtual events. It just seems to be the slightly safer option, I suppose, at the moment, especially for larger groups and larger companies. And just when you say virtual there, we're, we're all aware of the Zoom quizzes and that. Like, how, how does it work? Well, there's lots of different types of events out there. Um, like, we specialise in team building activities and kind of entertainment activities. You know, there's lots of different ways to get people together out there and have that interaction. Just for employers that might be listening today that... They want to hold something to recognise their employees' efforts, but they don't know what way to go around it. What advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think it's very difficult for employers at the moment. Like it's, They're obviously caught between a rock and a hard place in a, in a little bit. They want to get people together. They want them to have fun. They want to recognise all the hard work they've done all year. I suppose have a look at the different events that are out there. There's such a variety and, and just have a look and see what's really going to match your team's personality. Caroline Murray from Creative Events. So the appetite for virtual parties is still there. But for the venues that are gearing up for a potentially busy season, what are bookings like for Christmas? My name is Louise Doyle and I am the sales manager in the Grafton Hotel. What we have found traditionally what would have been larger parties, people are breaking off into smaller groups. We have more parties of 20 and 30. They're staying more with their internal office rather than company-wide. So, yeah, we are seeing still the same amount. Definitely not as big as 2019, though. But we're in a very unique position in that we have three venues under one roof. So what we've found is a lot of the groups, maybe 50 or 60, are opting to have a private space that has its own entrance, exit, cloakroom. So you'd literally only be dealing with the one party there. So some people I know from speaking to event organisers have said in their own companies, people have opted out. So a lot of people are taking their own personal responsibility as well. And are the dates starting a bit earlier this year now compared to other years? There is definitely inquiries for earlier, maybe more lunchtime bookings and things like that. A little bit earlier in November. Traditionally, you'd see that maybe the last week in November going into December. But yeah, there would be a little bit more inquiries coming through for a little bit earlier in the month. There's also a lot of inquiries or bookings being moved into January and February of next year. Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. I C U M I. In case you missed it. On News Talk. Does the revealing of this portrait, I mean, does it cause you to reflect on your own career, something like that? Well, yes, I suppose so. I mean, it's been a long time and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I mean, I've always absolutely loved the Senate. 
Have and you... luckily, I was left behind after the presidential election. Uh, I was there to help to save it. Uh, myself uh, and Sean Barrett and John Crown, the three of us, uh, stopped them abolishing the Senate. That that actually, it's it's ten years today since Michael D. Higgins was sworn in as as president in in twenty eleven. I mean, do, do you ever find yourself thinking what might have been? No, no. Uh, I'm like Edith Piaf. No, je ne regrette rien. <laughs> is that is that it, that that's a great line? But is that true? I mean, at some level, you must think about it. No, I don't. I don't believe in looking back. I believe in looking forward. Even though I suppose I'm at the end of my life, really. I still look forward and I love every, I enjoy every breath I take and every moment I spend. I mean, I'm sitting here now in the kitchen and I can look out and see the birds eating their monkey nuts and so on and enjoy it. Were you always good to do that, to take a moment out and enjoy life? Yes, I always, I was always a very happy child, you know, and uh, as I say, I enjoy life. Is that a lesson you think more of us <laughs> could follow? Well, I don't believe in giving lessons, but yes, I, I, I would say that it's, it's a good line to follow, definitely, yes. I mean, when you look back on those, uh, all those years, 34 years, I think, isn't it, in, in, yes. in, in the Senate, the longest-serving senator, longest-continuous run uh, in the Shannon. I mean, are there beyond saving the Senate, uh, not long after that presidential election, what are your achievements that you're most proud of? Well, uh, one of the ones I'm most proud of is that I founded the Foreign Affairs Committee. I mean, we're the only country in Europe. We were the only country that didn't have a Foreign Affairs Committee. And uh, uh, the Senate, at one time or another, every single member of the Senate called for the establishment of a Foreign Affairs Committee if they were in opposition. Uh, so I decided to give it to them. And I called a Foreign Affairs Committee meeting. And I hired a room in Buswell's Hotel and uh, we had our first meeting, and uh, the Andrews brothers from Fianna Fáil came and so on and so forth. That put a bit of a bomb under Charlie Hoy. So he started a Foreign Affairs Committee then in reaction to mine. Why didn't we have one? I mean, was it just something that had been overlooked, or was there kind of politics at play, and was it to do with the North and whether you talk about the North and a Foreign Affairs Committee? I just, I'm just wondering what the background was to the non-existence of one. You know, I think it was more that the civil servants uh, didn't want uh, amateurs uh, like politicians mucking up their nice professional playground. <laughs> OK, but they didn't get their way. So ultimately, we got that Foreign Affairs Committee. So that that stands out for you then as, as an achievement. Have you any, I, I know, I, if you can park the Edith PF part of your mind or your, your personality from just a moment, are there things that you look back on and you wish you had done differently or maybe not done differently? Maybe there's things that... Uh, no, I don't. No, I... I not at all. No, I think everything played out as it should. Yes, absolutely. The truly incredible Senator David Norris from the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. But first, of course, it's restrictions across all of the newspapers today. We will be getting reaction from industry and also uh, the reasons behind the decisions from Health Minister Stephen Donnelly a little bit later on at around 20 to 9. But there was that State of the Nation speech yesterday. Shane Michael Martin came out. He said we need to work from home wherever we can. There's now a curfew at midnight on hospitality, extending the COVID passes to cinemas and theatres, not gyms and hairdressers. Um, some use, not enough use, but some use of antigen testing and a rollout of boosters for the over 50s and indeed for anyone over the age of 16 who uh, has any kind of medical vulnerability. What did you make of it all? 
Uh, it's look it's depressing I think everyone's a bit depressed by what, what's emerging and the kind of projections that are emerging and there's a kind of sense of disbelief that we are back where we are and there was a feeling I think we all thought it when we all got the, the vaccines that we were looking to a brighter dawn it hasn't worked out like that hopefully as, as you're making the argument the boosters will make a huge difference and look I've, I agree with all the things you've been you've been banging the drum about in the, over the last uh, few weeks in relation to antigen testing in relation to uh, the booster um, but um, I, I do think as well we need to look beyond just always looking to the government uh, and looking to NEFID for solutions. And look, I don't think lockdowns, we can't keep going into lockdowns. We have to fight because COVID's going to be with us for years, as you know better than I do, Kira. Um And we have to find a way of living with it, a, a kind of a middle ground between lockdown and kind of, you know, maybe how we've been living for the last two months, which is understandable given that we had 18 months before. it. And I think it's about personal responsibility, a lot of personal responsibility and making smart decisions. So it it, it means we're not cosseting ourselves away, but at the same time, we're not meeting everybody. We're not going out every night of the week. And maybe like someone like me, I went to about four matches at the weekend. Maybe I need to say, well, maybe I don't go to all four of those games. I go to two of those games or one of those games. Uh, I'm not sure we're up to doing that in this country. I'm not sure we're particularly good at it. I kind of think that's what we need to do, though. You know, I, I'm a big believer in act, treating people like adults and they'll behave like adults rather than treating them like children and they behave like children. But I do worry that we haven't brought in the right things. I don't think the curfew is going to be much of a solution. I don't think a vaccine... That was just a shot across the bows, But though, a vaccine it? pass in theatres. These these are window dressing things. What I do think is is that we should have rolled out antigen testing more extensively, but that's a, a different matter. And I now think that it is a race between us and the boosters, the virus and the boosters. If you look at Israel, please look at Israel. We have a huge 9 million person study in the country that is Israel. Israel were in double digits only, like, you know, 17, Mm -hmm. 35, whatever, of cases at the start of the summer. They were 11,000 a day by September. They're back down into a couple of hundred a day because the boosters are effective. We should have moved more quickly. I don't know why we are so slow. I really don't and I don't think there's much of an excuse for it. Mind you, apparently... Not a lot. Not a lot of people turning up to get their um, appointment to, for for the booster. That I don't understand. Get the booster. Take it. I don't care what you know. I, I'm, and for people who don't understand, well, they say, "Oh, you could get it anyway." Yeah, you can, but you're much less likely. About twenty times more likely to end up in ICU if you have been uh, not vaccinated as if you have been vaccinated. Look, it is a race. But what will you do out there? What are you willing? Ask not what your country should do for you. What will you do for your country? What are you willing to do by way of changing your behaviours in terms of the restrictions? Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. You mentioned loneliness fraud. How does that? How does that actually work? Like, what are the the examples of that, Ross, for people? So, so I'll give you a very it's, it's it's a very extreme example, Andrea, but it's one that I think will resonate with people. So, if I went on to RIP.ie, okay, I could very clearly see I could scout around, and eventually it wouldn't be too long before I'd find a widow or a widower. I would see that their husband or wife or partner had died, which means potentially there's a life assurance check en route. And I would also see if there was sons or daughters, nieces and nephews, because it's all listed. Yeah. So straight away, I now know who my perfect target is. I have someone who's lost a loved one, potentially has no sons and daughters, nieces or nephews to help them out, or else they might be overseas. And therein lies the opportunity. And then the fishing for additional information, looking at their social profile, etc., etc. And before you know it, you have the perfect opportunity to go in there. You build that relationship with the, with the person. You build it on trust. But then comes the critical thing. And it's like normal dating or any of these things. You know, you don't expect someone to ask you for money. As soon as you get, you know, asked for money, or if you come across scenarios whereby the the person says, I'll come to Ireland as soon as COVID is over. 
they're the warning signs, okay? And what I would say is, and I appreciate not everyone has someone they can talk to, mm. but if you have someone to talk to, you know, and you have someone that you're, I'm not trying to say that you can't progress with your life, of course you can, but talk to someone and say, look, is this person genuine? How do they get my details? You know, and often what fraudsters will do is they'll try and create a link. What they'll do is they'll look at your profile and see, well, actually, we both worked, or sorry, you worked in the in a hospital in London back in the 80s or, yeah. 80s or 90s. And suddenly be a case, so, well, I worked in the same hospital. Did you know Dr. X? Well, now he's moved to a, a new um, role in Turkey and we're looking for donations for our medical supplies or for a children's hospital. So again, it's appealing for that kind of sense of charity and goodwill. So it's very complicated. So I think, you know... This is what, common. It's very common. Yeah, it's yeah. very common. And it evolves every day, Andrew, because, you know, as this is Fraud Awareness Week. Yeah. And I know, obviously, um, when my colleagues Paul was on Business Breakfast yesterday talking about kind of the business side of the yeah. house. But this is evolving and it changes every day. And it's up to us, the state, the banks, the, the, the media, the families, but also our own selves. We have to take on board this message. It's, it's very like COVID. And I'll explain what that is. It's a pandemic, OK? When COVID started, we thought it affected seniors and vulnerables. But in reality, we found out to our cost it affected everyone. Mm. OK, when COVID started... We suddenly realise that if you don't take the basic precautions, you get caught out, similar to fraud. When COVID started, you know, we suddenly realised that it mutated and it variated. And that's what's currently happening now is things are changing. And obviously, like COVID as well, you know, the long term impact on customers and people and families around Ireland. You know, you know, when someone takes your life savings, it is a huge impact on you. Yeah, it's just it's really interesting to hear you talk about the the likes of your obituary notices and just the the potential for you know people might look at them and a phone call maybe a day or two after a funeral when people are at their their most vulnerable and you know your guard could be down and next thing as you say you're you're maybe giving account details or pin numbers or something like that over the phone. So I think it's it's definitely yeah. worthwhile to flag. I saw one the other day, like it just shows you. And I'll give an extreme example again whereby uh, it was a website and it was it was under the banner of kind of uh, equality, gender equality. And the question that was asked being posed was, did your mother keep, take your father's name? And it was like a quiz. And, and But actually what happened is most people came back and said, no, 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 no. But you could see in the thread that people were going, no, no, she kept her name. She was Donnelly at birth and she died at Donnelly. And next thing the people go, great, I now know basically your mother's maiden name. Okay. And it's things like that. So we're 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 all you on never these. Think of yeah. It's I know you think you're just actually you're you're passing the day. You're you're having an enjoyable time on social media, but you're giving information out. Some helpful tips from Rossmore from Lunchtime Live with Andre Gilligan on Friday. Off the ball explores the menstrual cycle and female athletes. Menstrual cycles can undoubtedly impact the performance levels of female athletes, but thankfully it is becoming something far less taboo. Down Camogie star Niamh Mallon works as a sports scientist with the Galway-based firm Oracle, who developed the Fitter Woman app. She explains the work that they do. I suppose an example that, that I could give to you would be, you know, in Oracle uh, and through the Fitter Woman app, we break up the menstrual cycle into four key phases as such. So phase one being menstruation um, and then phase the whole way through to phase four, which is sort of that pre-menstrual window. So in phase three, um, for example, this is when the per- the hormone, this is just an example, uh, progesterone you know, sort of rises to a peak and that hormone is said to be somewhat catabolic. Based off that, um, muscle breakdowns increased and therefore at a practical level um, and from a nutrition standpoint, we would suggest you know increasing your protein intake around training at this time to try and offset that muscle breakdown and, and aid with recovery. Um, so yeah, that's just a, a simple example of 
of one of the suggestions um, that we would would make across the cycle. But you know, each phase is their own sort of specific recommendations, um, nutritionally, recovery-wise, um, and training-wise to an extent. But it's all about you know optimizing performance and getting you know the athlete, you know whether you're recreational or elite, on pitch onto the court whatever it may be um, in the best possible state regardless um where you're at um, in your menstrual cycle because at the end of the day like we're, we're different we have different bodies to men sometimes we are going to need a little bit more slack but it doesn't mean that we're not trying as hard as we possibly can it just means that we're experiencing two things at the same at the same time um, and our body's under that little bit more stress but in terms of for me, like when I when I compete or when I am racing, it's in the past I used to go on the pill so that I could map out when I am going to get my period so that it's not going to interrupt my racing. Um, and that's something that girls do actually look into and girls do try and get as much control over their period as much as possible because some some people might have worse off symptoms than others and it's it is just recognizing that maybe as a coach that not every girl is the same and some girls might have worse off symptoms Shane Hannon from off the ball I see you M I in case you missed it on news talk I'm drinking less now that the pubs are open but when they were closed it was ridiculous it was just nothing to do ah go to the Otvises, which is about 30 seconds walk from my house, so work that one out for yourself. Just the, the temptation, it was just the accessibility There was to nothing it. else to do. Weather was bad, whatever. I was good, actually. I had my drink and sit in the backyard, so it just went up. Um, would you have been someone that would have drank at home in the past? No, no, never drank at home. I used to buy four bottles of beer at Christmas, which I never drank. Just never into drinking at home. And this madness turned me into a near enough housebound alcoholic. Could you give me an idea of the amounts you were drinking? Or Well, to start off, it's say like four bottles. Then I went up to eight cans. Uh, that was four or five times a week. Then I went on to wine, which I discovered was easier to carry and get rid of, the bo- empty bottles. Then it was a combination of that. And it's a slippery slope. Yeah, very easily. And did you find yourself kind of saying to yourself, here, I need to wind it in a bit? No, no I never thought that. It was only when the pubs actually opened, I kind of, oh, Jesus... I realised how bad I was actually doing. So once the pub was open again, I, I slowed right down. Was that hard? For a while, yeah. It was just because you were so used to just oh, have a drink. For a few weeks now, it's no problem at all. Just have a couple the way I used to. And what would you put it down to now were the reasons that you were having a drink in the afternoon or on a weeknight? A bit of a novelty because you could, because you weren't walking. There was no, oh, I have to go for work tomorrow and I have to. There was none of that. You couldn't go anywhere. Lack of imagination. I'll have a drink. In what ways have your drinking habits changed? Um, I have to consciously choose, like, not to. And before, I didn't have to think about it as much. Like, I literally have to say, it's Sunday, don't have a drink. Your whole and now I'm literally shifted. like, Monday, it's Monday, Katie. <laughs> don't have a glass of wine. It's Tuesday. Maybe still not. Maybe you want to wait till Thursday. Thursday. Let's do Thursday. You found in lockdown you were having a drink at home maybe on a weeknight, whereas pre-COVID this wouldn't be something you would have rented. No, never. I never would have done that. I just would have gone to bed. <laughs> and now that life has somewhat returned to normal, has that kind of habit vanished again? Uh, no, I still have to be really conscious like to not drink on weeknights. <laughs> So how the drinking habits have changed for some throughout the lockdown. Uh, one of the reasons people give for increasing their alcohol consumption is boredom, but there, there are other factors too.
Yes, Pat. And just to note, this is a similar trend in younger age groups as well. So Drink Aware research shows that binge drinking among 18 to 24-year-olds has almost doubled since the first lockdown. It's gone from 16% to 31%. Now, like everything, there are endless reasons and excuses for people deciding to have a drink, but one that has been cited throughout the pandemic is a coping mechanism. With uncertainty leading to stress and stress leading to worry, some people just felt the need to either blanket out for a while or unwind with a few drinks. But I've been speaking with Brendan Kelly, who's a professor of psychiatry at Trinity college and he says alcohol plays the exact opposite role in support and just listen out for some of the stats here he has too over the past two years now our usual supports which are other people have been very much diminished and uh, we found people using alcohol an awful lot more and maybe sooner than they would have otherwise used it and in slightly greater amounts and how damaging can it be i suppose when that support crutch is a substance such as alcohol well, you see, the problem is that other people, when we use them as supports, they often do offer support. Alcohol doesn't. We know that alcohol makes all our worry, worries worse. We know that, for example, alcohol is involved in about a third of episodes of self-harm and it's involved in half of completed suicides. So the thing we think is a support crutch is anything but. Is it our Irish culture or conversation that leads people to choosing alcohol as that support crutch rather than yeah, exercise yeah. or... I mean, in Ireland, we have a a tradition of, you know, one in four people don't drink alcohol at all. But the others, if you like, more than make up for it. Our consumption per head is above average. It's one of the highest in the OECD. So what advice would you have for people listening who might find themselves, look, they don't view themselves as, I have an alcoholic issue or an addictive problem, but they are finding themselves opening the bottle of wine on a weeknight. What advice would you have for them? Well, the message for everybody is to drink less alcohol. In an ideal situation, we would drink no alcohol at all. But in the context of some people's lives and social lives, that's very, very difficult. So we would suggest cutting down on the amount of alcohol you drink, stopping if at all possible, and looking at doing other things in order to cope. Because alcohol doesn't help us cope. It makes things worse. Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. Now, this week, Alive and Kicking spoke to endurance cyclist and author Joe Barr. Here's Claire McKenna. And Joe, can we talk about some of the realities of an ultra race? I mean, you talked about some of it there, battling through the nights, the coldness. Um, I mean, in, in, in 2012, you almost died from altitude sickness. You're up 11,000 feet at Wolf yeah. Creek Pass in the race across America. What do you remember about that time? Oh, I remember it very clearly. <laughs> it was uh, it, it's a it's a period in time I'll I'll probably never forget. Actually, um, you know, it was a lot to do with. Um, first of all, you know, to, to probably to set the scene for that little bit of the story was like in two thousand and nine when I won the very first ultra race I ever entered in the race around Ireland. I qualified for Race Across America, uh, and and the preparation that I had for Race Across America. Uh, probably, you know, on hindsight now, was not good. It wasn't certainly not good enough. Um, I didn't have the correct skill sets with me and I didn't fully understand uh, what Race Across America really was about because, you know, I, I sort of I, I sort of viewed it from the point, well, you know, I've won Race Around Ireland. It's, it's two and a half thousand kilometres long. You know, I know Race Across America is double that, but it can't be that much harder. That was sort of the mindset that I went to it with. Um, and and the reality to it is, uh, Race Across America brings so many other challenges up and above riding the bicycle for that period of time for five thousand kilometres nonstop. Um, and two of those big challenges is 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 the searing temperatures that you have in the desert, and 
the altitude that you have in the Rockies. And it's a combination of both of those as to how they're situated together in the race that makes it a very difficult challenge. And when I got to, when I was coming out of Arizona after being in the desert with that sort of heat for two days and two nights, you know, I was very, very, you know, dehydrated as most riders are at that point, like even though it's being managed to the best of their capability. But Wolf Creek Pass is almost 100 kilometers long from the start to the top of it. And when you reach the top, you're on the Great Divide. You literally pass over the top of it. And uh, on that ascent, uh, I mean, I knew that there was something wrong with me. I just didn't know what it was. I was putting it down to fatigue because it got to the point I could hardly breathe. And obviously, there's the oxygen is getting less and less and less. But what I didn't know was how low the oxygen saturation had dropped in my blood. Uh, and, if, and luckily for me, um, when you crest over the top of Wolf Creek Pass and you drop down about 3,000 feet, um, there's a little town called South Fork. And there, there is a hospital, a very good hospital, actually. And uh, I was luckily for me, I, they were able to treat the altitude sickness. Like, But unfortunately, the next step of that's a coronary and they couldn't deal with that. So they would have to fly me to Denver and that couldn't happen. So there was a four hour window in that part of the story where it was really, really touch and go like, but thankfully they stuck with it and, and that all turned out to be okay. But it's, it's certainly, uh, it was certainly a big learning curve and it's something I'll never really forget to be honest. Well, it didn't deter you. You went back to that race in 2014 and got that finisher's medal. And in 2019, at the age of 60, you went back again and won your category. But as well as talking about your achievements, I'd love to talk about this quote. I've lost way more than I've won. You have to learn to lose to improve, to get so get busy losing. In fact, lose spectacularly. And I think that's so important to talk about, Joe. We don't talk about the power in failure enough. And I love that you touch on that in the book. Yeah, you know, we, we always say we like if, if there's a failure, we fail forward. And uh and there is no failures. They're all learning processes. Like so, effectively, every time you you know one of the biggest failures is for us is not not getting to the start line. And uh, when you get to the start line, that in itself is success because you've actually got the first part of the event over. Um, and that's a difficult task. Um, so so for us, like you know, we try to to to, to cherry pick all the good pieces that that we have learned um, and we take those and we try and interrogate them to see how we can actually perform better the next time or what we need to change or shift because that's the only way that you can you, you can progress forward really um, because you know it, it's little simple things like you know I in 2016 I had to take a step back after you know starting in 2009 um, to try to understand um, a statement that was made actually in the very first race around Ireland um, by that world champion that I beat because I heard him being interviewed on the start line in front of me and he said, I'm not getting off my bike for 50 hours. And I literally nearly fell over because I thought to myself, "That's I don't even know how you could even do that. Uh, but that's where the learning then of you know the experiences of the different parts of my life started to all play out bit by bit in, in the race that I was in. But it took me to 2016 to fully understand that you can't uh, get to the end uh, successfully of any of these events. And effectively, you can't even actually get to the end of your life successfully uh, without, um, you know, putting down the bravado approach of, you know, it'll be okay, I'll push my way through all of this. You can't do that. 
you, you need to actually step back, change your mindset, which is what I did in 2016 as to how I understood what exactly writing through 50 hours really meant. And that's where I started to improve. Um, and that's just a demonstration of that because I took a completely different approach to how I was approaching um, sleep deprivation in the nighttime. Uh, rather than trying to bully my way through it every night, which wasn't really that successful because it was forcing me off the bike. And when I was off the bike, I was losing time. Uh, where I actually adopted the, 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 the format of slowing up in the nighttime. And when you slow up, um, that opens up a number of different avenues and, and ways to think about things. So what we always say in the team is that, you know, when you think about a thing differently, the thing you're thinking about, become something different and and that's whenever you actually take the next step forward and you can only do that so that's some it's a really a mindset change that i would suggest that has really really worked for me joe barr from alive and kicking with claire mckenna and of course you can tune into claire every sunday morning from eight till nine okay i'm going to leave you with now a short clip from talking history's live show from belfast have a great weekend Michael, isn't there always that challenge with commemoration? Because sometimes people get angry. They think that if you're commemorating something, it's, it means that you're celebrating it. And sometimes people have very heated views on what should be commemorated. Yes, they do, and they're totally wrong. Uh, you celebrate if your party wins an election. You celebrate uh, if your team wins a match. But commemoration is totally different. Commemoration can have positive elements. It can have deeply negative elements as well. Just to take the most obvious, the classic example, to commemorate the famine does not celebrate the famine. It means that we look at it, we examine it, we put it in context, we remember it together. All these are involved in in the idea, the concept of commemoration. And because we are all now, and at all times, products of the past, we have to look at the past regularly to understand how we've come to be where we are, what we are, and that involves often a degree of commemoration as well, of course, as quiet study. So commemoration may involve celebration. Very often, in fact, normally it doesn't, and sometimes it very definitely shouldn't. The two must be distinguished one from another. Margaret, you've done some excellent work on the the challenges of commemoration in other periods. You've looked at, for example, 1916 and how it was commemorated in, in 1966. I wonder, is commemoration always difficult to get right? Yeah, I agree with Michael that um, celebration is quite different from commemoration. But commemoration is used by groups, sometimes by individuals, sometimes by governments, as politics in the present, if you like. So the activation of commemoration for political purposes is something we can't really get away from. So, for example, looking at 1916, you ask questions like, who owns 1916? Is it the legacy of the Irish state? Uh, You know, that the Sinn Féin tried to make claims to it in 2016 this time. So I suppose every time you talk about commemoration, you talk about political uses to which the past can be put in the present. And I agree with Michael, it's not the same as celebration, but it's often, they're often confused in popular perception and they set up a ground, I suppose, through which people struggle to impose their own politics. So in divided societies in particular, a commemoration can be a site of political uh, 
fighting or contestation at the very least, I think. So, Paul, you must have had your work cut out for you then chairing this historical advisory panel because uh, this probably was going to be a contested uh, series of commemorations. So how did you approach it and what sensitivities did you have to bear in mind? By the way, the first thing I'd like to say is, although I wasn't taught by Michael, I've been hugely influenced as a historian by his books. So uh, I'm also one of, the, one, of, one of Michael's pupils in one way. Uh, but yes, Margaret is completely right. In a divided society, this, there is an element of contestation. Uh, the first thing I tried to do was to get a panel of people who were as diverse and as good scholars as could be gathered up. And I think I'm enormously grateful to them as the end of the year approaches. You can see clearly the diversity and quite clearly there is no possibility of unanimity on many of the crucial issues about Northern Ireland in 1921 or Northern Ireland more generally in that group. But nonetheless, we have been able to work together. We have put together a number of things. I think there will be a legacy, for example, in terms of the uh, enhanced release of documents from the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, uh, the book that we're planning for later in the year, and so on. So, I, you know, the best you can do, you have to accept what Margaret said, bluntly. Uh, the, 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 degree, the degree of division has slightly surprised me. I'm sure how naive I am. And I, I think part of the reason is it's just a difficult year with Brexit and COVID interacting and not, neither of them improving anybody's temper. Uh, um, so basically, you have to just accept that as a starting point. I, don't, I can't recall, and we've done many events, broadcasts and so on, uh, 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 people around this table, probably between the three of us, over 100, uh, and I don't recall anybody actually saying that was an outrageously unpleasant dispersion on my deeply held beliefs that I've just listened to. So we have really tried now. There's a few days of the year to go, so it's going to happen. I, I shouldn't have tempted fate by saying that. But that's the only thing you can do. You can get the best historians that are, that, that are available to you. I have to say this, and we maybe come back to this, that there's a limit to what historians can do. And I think both in the, in, 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 in the Republic, and I've watched closely the excellent work done by scholars there and in the North, there is actually a limit, but we can at least try and hit the limit the best we can do. I C U M I. In case you missed it. On News Talk.